and 10 of the 12 spies said, it's terrible over there, that there's, there's nothing but death over there. They were talking about the Nephilim and giants, and that, you know, they painted the promised land into a horrendous and horrific place, so much so that the whole camp, the whole tribes of Israel were sort of in mass panic and hysteria. And only two of the spies actually reported the truth, that no, this is a land that God has promised us and it is fruitful and we should take it. And those, was Josh, those two were Joshua and Caleb. And Israel was that panicky about what they'd heard from the other ten that they threatened to stone and kill Jay, uh, Joshua and Caleb there and then. Um, that was Numbers 14. Um, so the story starts with the passage that the whole of the nation of Israel, they're camping and they're woken up early one morning and they move and then they stay put on the banks of the River Jordan. And the only thing stopping many hundreds of thousands of God's people from entering the Promised Land is this great mighty river. And they sit there and they face that barrier for three days. And I can imagine those three days for some would have been full of worry. For some, it would have been full of boredom. For some, it may have been full of doubt and contemplation. They hadn't got the plan yet. They were just told to go. And they stood there on the edge on this bank of this massive river for three days. And what's more, it's not usually like this because this is harvest time and in harvest time the river Jordan bloats and it floods so it's doubly hard you can imagine thinking Joshua why are you leading us this way there are easier places to cross why here why now, why this time of year and so for three days they face this obstacle and at moments like that all the talk about, you know, all that wonderful talk about living in the promised land and could, could sound pretty hollow um, when there's like a seemingly impossible obstacle that's in your way. How is God going to deal with this one? And here we get to that first camera angle, that first scene where Joshua... The camera zooms into Joshua and then pans out. We see the whole of Israel. And Joshua says, Israel, consecrate yourself. Make yourself ready. Be prepared. Something amazing is going to happen. Something that has never happened before. Consecrate yourselves. Now, we don't know exactly how that consecration worked. The author doesn't explain to us. We do know there's a similar account in Exodus where the Israelites consecrated themselves. And what they did was they washed themselves and they cleaned all the clothes. And in a ritualistic sense, they made themselves pure, clean, before God. And that's no small feat in a desert with lack of water. But that's how much they wanted to make themselves right with God. They cleaned all the clothes they washed themselves. And the other thing is, in that instance, they abstained from sexual intercourse. They got rid of some of the trappings in life that distracted them from God. Uh, so they, 
purified themselves and they abstained or fasted or whatever, you, however you want to talk about it. But that was how they consecrated themselves then. And I suspect they consecrated themselves in the same way on the banks of the River Jordan, preparing themselves uh, for what God was about to do. And then Joshua commands the priests. He tells the Israelites, consecrate yourself. And then he commands the priests to take the ark. Second camera angle. And it zooms in on this box. This wonderful, this ornate box. With cherubim and seraphim on it. The, the lid of the box was that ornate. It was called the mercy seat. And it's got poles that priests can hold and carry walk it along, it's a beautiful box but don't be distracted by any of that glitter because it's what's inside the box that counts and inside that box, inside the ark were the very words of God as handed down from God to Moses and they're inside that box and like that uh, pillar of cloud that was, going to, that was the sort of lasting presence of God in the Israelites' lives what's going to be different now in, Israelite, in Israel's life is that God's presence is going to be symbolized by the ark and what's in the ark. And that's going to take center sort of stage, our third camera angle. And in one sense, this um, ark, if you carry on reading in Joshua, it, it acts like a prehistoric superweapon um, because this box has power. God uses this box to do things like knocking walls down around the whole of a city. And it, for Israel, it is the symbol of God's presence with them. That God is with them because they've got the ark. It's, it kind of unfolds later on in Joshua and, and Numbers that you know, Israel start depending on the ark rather than God. But at this point in time, this is God's presence on earth. Here in the ark. Follow the ark. And so the priests, they're told to pick this ark up and walk. And don't stop when your toes are about to get wet. Keep walking. Keep moving. Now we get to our third scene. Cuts. And our third scene is Joshua. And we get quite an intimate moment here between Joshua and God. And we hear what God says to Joshua. Now bear this in mind, who Joshua succeeded. Joshua succeeded Moses, the leader of the Israelites. Moses, the greatest prophet of all time. Moses, who through this man alone, God uh, rescued his people out of slavery. Moses, in Moses alone, did God hand words to him and the law to him. Moses, even today in the Jewish religion, is, held, is the centre of Judaism. Moses. It might be a bit naive, but it's kind of akin to how Muslims um, hold uh, Muhammad as central to their faith. For, for Jews then, or for Jews today, Moses the law of Moses. The Lord was with Moses. And Moses was God's agent on earth. 
And now Joshua has been told that that same esteem, that same status, that, that same bestowing is going to be on him. And that's Joshua being exalted. And the people would see and know that as God was with Moses, God is now going to be with Joshua. Now that's quite an amazing turn of fortunes, bearing in mind just a few chapters ago. The whole of the Israelite camp wanted to stone Joshua. That, that restoration in the eyes of his people, what God does, is truly quite remarkable. So, the priests have got their orders, the Israelites have got their orders, and the camp breaks, and the camp moves, and the story unfolds that they cross over the Jordan. And just as God described it, uh, no one's feet got wet. It was this generation's Red Sea. A whole generation had to pass. They, had, they didn't experience the Red Sea, this new generation. They had nothing to hold on to. And so, in, in one sense, this was this generation's Red Sea as they crossed the Jordan. So, do you remember when I said the history of Israel is an example to us? Corinthians chapter 10. Our question is, what, what, is, what are our personal Jordans that we need to cross in our lives? You know, the Israelites, they waited on the banks of the Jordan for a move order. And when they received it, they did it. And we have that calling in our lives, become more like Christ more like Christ. That's, what, that's our duty. That's our move order. And yet we, I, quite often choose to stay on the bank rather than be where God wants me to be. There are things in all our lives that we, that are our, our own personal Jordans. Things that we've not been able to cross. Worries, doubts, fears. There are habits in our lives that are from our old selves, from our former lives that we hold on to. And that, even though that process of sanctification was begun and is complete in an eternal perspective, in the sense, you know, we're clothed in Christ, we're identified with Christ, we're still called to work out our salvation. And parts of the old self still exist. And those parts of our old selves that we struggle with are our own personal Jordans because we're not where God wants us to be. And if we could pass through them, then we would be where God wants us to be. There are, in many of our lives, maybe some seemingly impassable milestones in our attempts to get uh, into a closer relationship with God. But this passage offers us some encouragement because when the Israelites faced that impossible problem of the big river, you know, they didn't see it as an oppressive trial, a burden. Actually, they saw it as an opportunity to see God being glorified. And I think that's quite interesting. That haunting sort of command or statement that the lieutenants in the camp shouted out you have never been this way before. 
it, it, that strikes the fear of God into me, I think. It does. You know, when I think about some of my own personal Jordans, I've never let go of them. I've never been that way before. But to the Israelites, they responded. And they did. They trusted and they moved. They sanctified themselves. They consecrated themselves. They'd been pulled through the Red Sea. They'd been made God's people. And it took 40 years for them to start learning to behave like God's people. And they wandered all over the desert. There's a map in the church Bibles, if you want to have a look at it. Um, And even then, at, at the banks of the River Jordan, at the back door of the Promised Land, they were still called to consecrate themselves. That process of uh, sanctifying yourself and becoming uh, more godly was still in work there. And that's reassuring because in our baptism and through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we too have figuratively been brought through the Red Sea. And we are God's people. And we're called to sanctify ourselves and to consecrate ourselves daily as we become more like Christ and if the Israelites can do it then we can and we have that spirit as Steph prayed that spirit that we can call God Father Abba Father Um, but you know I say this and I'm sure many of you also can empathise with it. it it's not as easy as that And I hope that I won't become content to get into the promised land through the back door. That I'll work out my salvation and I will continue this process of sanctifying myself and being more like Christ. Just in closing, um, I was really moved by what Pat had to say this morning. It was moving. And, you know, the way she spoke with confidence about Bill's and her trust in God's promise. Absolutely. Only Christians can face death and bereavement in that fashion. Only Christians can. And you know, people without faith, psychologists say this, Freud said it, philosophers say it, Nietzsche said it, that the human race's overwhelming fear and preoccupation is in our own mortalities and in our own deaths. It's the root of all of our anxieties apparently. Um, But not so with Christians because death has lost its sting. And if you think about it, death is a Jordan that we'll all face to get to the other side, to get to that promised land. Bill's done it. We can do it. Um, When God calls us, you know, and we trust the Lord's promises and uh, I'm just you know I'm sad for Pat but I'm thankful that God has been glorified in it and people have been encouraged in it should we pray Father we thank you for your word we thank you for its example to us that Um, we can sit, we can study, we can explore and you can speak to us through it. Lord, we have many obstacles in our lives that prevent us from being where you want us to be. 
And yet you have taken us out of sin. You've freed us from our old selves. And so, Lord, help us to live in the light of that salvation. Heal us where there are hurt. Release us where we're bound. Help us to cross our own personal Jordans and to be more like you and enter into the promised land. Amen.